site, please raise a hand and someone will come around and provide that to you. I don't see any hands. Okay. So as some of you know, uh, PEN America stands at the intersection of literature and human rights. Our mission is to unite writers and their allies, to celebrate creative expression, and to defend the liberties that make it possible. It's our belief that art connects us during challenging times. So it's my pleasure to welcome you to one of my favorite annual events, the Emerging Voices Final Reading. Don't be shy about claps. I like a clap in audience. Emerging Voices, EV as we call it, is a literary mentorship that provides new writers who feel isolated from the literary establishment with the tools, skills, and knowledge they need to launch a professional writing career. Tonight, Juby, Ron, Natalie, Angela, and Frankie will join the 141 writers who have completed the fellowship since 1996 and have gone on to publish nearly 50 books and earn hundreds of awards, publications, and honors. I never waste an opportunity to say publicly that this is a more successful record than some MFA programs, mostly because, mostly because we're so proud of this community of artists and friends. 2018 has been a year of change for our organization. For the last 30 years, the U.S. has been home to two Penn Centers affiliated with the Global Penn Network, Penn Center USA in Los Angeles and Penn America in New York. As of March, we unified under the name Penn America because we believed that we'd be stronger together. And we now have major offices in Los Angeles, D.C., and New York City, and programming nationwide. Change like this is, of course, as thrilling as it is demanding. It requires introspection and honesty about where you've been, where you are, and where you want to go. When things are working, it can be really hard to look at what's not. That goes for organizations at large, but also for programs like EUV. I've always been particularly admiring of leaders who can effectuate change with steady grace. People who can pull things apart, who are willing to live with some fear for a while. Because they have a belief in the better tomorrow. This is a process that writers know well, and it can be painful. But to thrive, not just survive, things have to evolve. In the case of EV, that's because what writers actually need evolves, especially in a digital age. So the success of each year relies on the organization, but more specifically the person leading EV to ask, what do our fellows need? How can we nurture their voices? And be willing to do more in the case we aren't delivering on some aspect of our mission. I mention all of this first because I want to thank our EV Fellowship Manager, Amanda Fletcher. So there are three types of people in critical situations. People who run away, people who freeze, and people who run in. And Amanda runs in, folks. As an EV alumna, 
a former EV program coordinator, and now in her second year as the EV fellowship manager, Amanda has dedicated herself in this whole body way to EV's possibility and growth, which resulted in a landmark year. In addition to the many life-changing components the EV Fellowship already included, like a professional mentor, UCLA and masterclass workshops, voice coaching, 25 private meetings with authors, agents, and editors, the 2018 Fellowship also included, for the very first time, a marketing workshop with Jack Jones Literary Arts, a submission workshop with Writing Workshops Los Angeles, Editorial notes from Julia Callahan, who is in the audience tonight. Oh, please, yes, clap for Julia. And one-on-one -on -one agent speed pitches with Betsy Amster, Sarah Bolin, Bonnie Nadell, and BJ Robbins. Evie created a more in-depth poetry fellowship track, which included meetings with Derek Brown, Chawan Choi, Douglas Kearney, Jeffrey Davis, Ricky Laurentis, Carl Phillips, and Denez Smith. With help from Pasadena Literary Alliance, EV increased the fellows' stipend, which we're excited to announce will be renewed for our 2019 fellows. And if this wasn't enough, Amanda recently launched the Emerging Voices podcast to share the resources of EV with a wider audience. Three episodes are live on our website now, pen.org, and I encourage you to listen, learn, and laugh. Amanda is hilarious. Uh, alongside EV Masterclass instructors F. Douglas Brown, Alex Espinoza, and former EV mentor Samantha Dunn. <laughs> Next year, EV hopes to keep identifying what's imperative for our writers here and now, from professional websites to marketing platforms and beyond. So I'm so grateful for all your work this year, Amanda. Thank you. And thanks to programs coordinator Natalie Green and EV intern Melina Castorio. The team I work with at Penn is really unbelievable, so I appreciate you all. This talk of change is also a charge for the graduating EVs tonight. After this reading, I want you to run into your lives, your projects, make a mess, and sit with it. Be uncomfortable, be patient, and never lose the love for words that brought you to our door. Do the work over time and come out the other side of uncertainty stronger, better people and writers. Penn America has always recognized that books are entry points, offering readers chances to understand and celebrate differences. In doing so, we accept a responsibility to support writers who transport us, who are telling stories that depict the complexity of our world. We do this by presenting programs like Emerging Voices, which is, of course, a program for writers, but is also a program for readers, for every person who has looked for their story on the page. Tonight, as we celebrate our graduates and the staff begins to read applications for 2019, we hope that you'll consider supporting us by joining PEN America as a member. Whether you're a writer, a reader, or a friend, we're asking for your help to ensure the voices of all people are heard. For $150 a year, you can stand with more than 7,000 writers here in the United States and thousands of journalists, writers, and creatives around the globe. And together, I believe that we can resist challenges to our creative freedoms.
In fact, we can't cultivate and protect the next generation of writers and readers without you. So please stop by our membership table at the end of the reading, channel the inspiration that you feel following this, and really take a moment to give back. And on behalf of the writers, readers, and activists that PEN America represents, I just want to thank you again for believing in the true power of words and for joining us tonight to support our 2018 EB Fellows. Speaking of supporting our EV Fellows, after 22 years, mentorship remains the cornerstone of the EV Fellowship. To give you a sense of that invaluable relationship, the 2018 Emerging Voices mentors will introduce their mentees' readings tonight. First up is award-winning author and EV alumna, Lilium Rivera. Please welcome Lilium. Hello, hello, hello. Um, really excited to be here. Thanks for coming out. Um, we're living in a pivotal time right now. Immigrant children are being separated from their families and caged, drugged, and molested, right? Guns and corporations overshadow the safety of children in schools. The only solace I find is in speaking to young people and in my writing. Young adult fiction is a bridge to understanding. I'm, rem I'm reminded of this whenever I visit schools and libraries across the states. I believe it now more than ever. When I was first approached to mentor Angela Sanchez, my reaction was, what do I have to offer? I barely started this process myself. But that, qu that doubt quickly changed to how can I not, especially right now. The thing is, Angela is exactly where I was when I was awarded an Emerging Voices uh, Fellowship back in 2013. She has an eager, eagerness to learn with questions always at the ready. Her prose is the right combination needed in young adult fiction, engaging, magical, and with a dose of reality. In her young adult novel, um, Coyotes in Amarillo Heights, Angela tackles the ramifications of gentrification. Through her protagonist, Rocio, we find a young Latinx trying to straddle what is good for her family and her community while desperately keeping tight to her sense of self-worth. Like Sandra Cisneros, Meg Medina, and Margarita Engel, who was awarded a Penn Literary Award in 2014, Angela follows the footsteps of these authors who use fiction to ta tackle societal injustices. Margarita, Margarita Engel once said, all of our stories are important and when we share them, we begin to understand each other. The work is vital. The Cooperative Children's Book Center released the number of children's books by and about people of color published in 2017. They received 215 kids' books that featured significant Latinx characters and or content. Of those books, just 73 counted as own voices, meaning they were written by a Latinx, which begs the question, who gets to tell our stories. It is critical that Angela takes up as much space as possible. It's been an honor to return to PEN America's Emerging Voices Fellowship as a mentor. This very fellowship in many ways began my writing journey, and for me to give back has been truly a gift. But it was easy with Angela. She's determined, and there's no doubt in my mind that her books will be on bookshelves. How exciting it is for us to bear witness to this moment. How much of a blessing it is for me to play a minor part in Angela's journey. 
It's my pleasure to introduce you to Angela Sanchez. Lilia Moore heels. <laughs> Sunday afternoon had me hot, sweaty, and hustling to get home after my shift. I was officially boycotting Caliban Station for the rest of my life in Amarillo Heights. Did I miss the train in all its speedy, air-conditioned glory? Hell yes. But that wasn't an option no more. Not with a coyote demon monster thing creeping around the platform. I could find a better, safer route even if I was still walking along the freeway itself. I know, so much for safe. This freeway isn't just the oldest in LA, it's the oldest in the country, and still, no real on-ramps. You just went from zero to 60 in two seconds and hope nobody hit you. It's 110. <clears throat> Not much beyond more asphalt, separating the old, sketchy apartment buildings that loomed right across from the freeway. Cars parked on one side of a chain-link fence while swarms of sedans, pickups, cruisers, and crotch rockets zoomed past on the other, their hot octane breath uncomfortably close. Pausing by one of the sketch apartments, I stopped for a breather. Hopefully, none of the cars would come peeling off that exit too fast, or my ass was had. Still, no Caliban Station, no Domingo the Coyote Demon. Now, I'm sure there's someone out there going, OMG, Rocio, you got like this awesome wear coyote friend. How are you not talking to him? First of all, I am not that kind of person. I don't like roller coasters. I don't swim on the deep end of the pool. And I've never gotten high. I didn't make it this far by taking risks. And with a coyote head full of teeth that probably ate little chihuahua dogs, Domingo definitely fell into the flashing red danger zone. Not for me. No. Hell to the power of no cubed. Hey! I opened my eyes. This kid, maybe about my baby sister's age, could have been a year younger, blinked big brown eyes back up at me. Her hair swung in two neat braids down her back. Both her t-shirt and tights had cartoon characters printed all over them. Have you seen my pony? She asked. Pony? I repeated. And she nodded back at me. I figured she must have been talking about a toy horse, probably one of those deformed looking ones with the big eyes, neon manes, and tramp stamps of lollipops and rainbows on their sides. I scanned around. No. Like I'd maxed out my usefulness, this little girl whirled away from me and marched off to look for her lost toy alone. She wandered to the street gutter, closer to the freeway exit. Hey, whoa, kiddo, I called. You don't want to go there. The big sister and me made me follow her to the street. And an old Volkswagen veered off the exit and around the curb right toward her. Shit, watch out. Instinctively, I flung my hand out to grab her. But where my fingers should have connected with her arm, they passed through nothing. Well, not quite nothing. The space where the girl was felt cool, almost chilly. 
like how the space around Domingo felt. The car rumbled past, less than a foot from the girl, and I jerked my hand away from her, vapor whatever the hell essence you call it. As if she hadn't even felt me, the kid turned around and held out a scolding finger. Mommy always said to be careful around cars. Uh-huh. Barely managed to make my vocal cords vibrate. I half expected this kid's head to do a 180 and puke green slime. Slowly, I backed away and into someone else. I looked up in pale yellow eyes, coyote eyes, twinkled in a tawny, sharp-edged face. Domingo smirked. Having a fun afternoon, chicas patas? Okay, right then, I screamed. Clapping his hands over his ears, Domingo winced. Bit high-strung, aren't we? High-strung? I glared into his pretend human face, a young man with, a long, with long dark hair and a hooked nose. A muzzle, I reminded myself. The jeans and half-buttoned shirt Domingo wore were just another layer of the passing-for-human illusion. I knew it could fall apart in a heartbeat. High-strung, I repeated. Oh, I'm sorry if I came off as high-strung. You know, when you're 17 and going out of your way to avoid the guy whose face you literally saw transform into a coyote? Yeah, that does shit to your brain. Chicas patas, there are children present. He threw an exaggerated gesture in the girl's direction. And then I could see Domingo's yippy cackle want to break loose. We are neighbors, you know, and I've always lived here, Rocio. I also take care of all my neighbors. Then, brushing past me to crouch in front of the girl, Domingo held out a felt-covered toy horse. Is this your pony? Kiddo folded her arms, shook her head. Mine was pink with purple hair. Domingo frowned. But you like this one too, right? It's a nice pony, right? It's not my pony. Watching what looked like a grown-ass man arguing with a child might have been hilarious to me on any other day. But I knew where to look now. In the afternoon sun, the length of Domingo's shadow spilled on the pavement behind him, like anyone else's. But beyond the outline of his clothes, something flicked and wagged. There was his tail. My brain dragged up the feeling of prickly fur between my fingers when I accidentally pulled that tail a couple days ago, stumbling, grabbing, and watching Domingo flicker into an actual coyote. No way could that have been real. But my hand also just waved straight through the body of a kid, too. <clears throat> um, look, not trying to be rude or nothing, but what is she? I pointed at the kid. She's a ghost. Standing beside her, Domingo stuck his hand on the girl's forehead, and he wiggled his fingers. See, nothing there. I jerked my head, I jerked myself back. Cut that shit out. Ooh, you said a bad word. The girl's eyes widened. Really, Chica Spata, she's only this many. He held up five fingers. Then, patting the air above her head, Domingo added, and this one needs to get going, soon. There was something eerie about the way he said that. I asked, so what happens if she doesn't? Domingo stood up. I could suddenly feel that weird icy vibe of his. He spoke low and cold. Kiki died this morning. She was playing outside with, I'm guessing, 
this toy of hers. Truck peeled off the exit ramp too fast. Domingo hit the base of his palm against his open hand. Smack. She still looks like a regular child for now, but the longer she sticks around, the more she's gonna look and act like a ghost. Swallowing hard, I got my voice to work. And that's bad? Domingo nodded, no twinkle in his eyes this time. How else do you think you get hauntings? A chill raced up my arms, but this time my brain placed the feeling, numbing and spongy cold, dead. In that second, I knew exactly what Domingo was. Most people think the guy collecting departed souls is a skeleton in a bathrobe. Wrong. Soul collectors are coyotes in sneakers. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Jaime Becerra, uh, the mentor for Francisco Uribe, and it's my honor to be part of this uh, Merging Voices Fellowship Program, um, and specifically to be working with Francisco over the course of the year. Many in the room um, might agree that gaining a sense of traction under one's feet is perhaps the greatest challenge of starting out as a writer. To face a blank page is to confront all sorts of slippery anxieties. And this challenge is only amplified when you face the blank page as a person not in the habit of seeing yourself in the literature that inspired you to write in the first place. Among the insecurities is likely the question of what distinguishes your story as your story. And what makes your story deserving of a place in the larger world of authors and literary journals and books. With the support of other writers, and the encouragement of seasoned voices and the guiding inspirations of one's favorite stories, that sense of attraction can hopefully start to emerge. The pages may not, come, may not come easily, but over time, confidence in one's storytelling begins to accrue, a sense of one's uh, voice belonging starts to take shape. The opportunity to help accelerate this process is one of the joys of participating in Penn's Emerging Voices program which brings me to our next reader, Francisco Uribe. A Francisco's story will likely include some act of dramatic transgression, a mother whacking her daughter for a kiss that smudged her makeup, a teenager chopping at her hair with scissors and slashing her jeans with a butcher knife, a woman unlatching and overturning the closed casket at her mother's funeral. But as each story continues, we learn through prose that is artfully spare, remarkably adherent to perspective, and occasionally bent by the surreal. That the woman overturning the casket was hit for ruining her mother's lipstick. That years before she slashed her jeans and her hair because her father was choosing to abandon her. Over the course of my time with Francisco, I've seen work that is both audacious and unafraid to take risks. Work that results in characters that are prickly and prone to the unexpected. In these ways, I'm reminded of Elena Maria Viramontes and Hubert Selby Jr., 
and Stuart Dybeck, writers whose work also often subverts expectations of propriety and appearance to get at the sort of deeply rooted family trauma that remains with us and that can span generations. This sort of unflinching examination of the human condition is what I expect for us to hear tonight and to hopefully hear in more stories in the years to come. It is my honor to introduce you to Francisco Uribe. Please join me in welcoming him. been a, a wonderful experience, a, a great day. So thank you all for coming. When mi abuelo went fishing during the storm, I was with abuela in the kitchen. She diced onions and garlic, and the stuffy scent made my eyes cry. She grounded red chiles using the molcajete, and some of the spicy powder made its way to the back of my throat. I coughed. My abuela gave me water, then told me to go to the shore and be ready to help my abuelo carry the fish back home. The shore wasn't too far, a 30-minute walk from abuelas. While I walked, the rain was only a drizzle. The back of my throat still burned, so I opened my mouth and tilted my head up. The raindrops felt nice. My abuelo had been gone for nearly two hours and I wanted to be with him in his skiff, catching the fish that I love to eat, flavored with abuela's dried grated lemon peel seasoning. But my favorite tasting fish came during the summer and it was only winter. The storm did get worse. Heavy drops began to fall from the sky. They were all bunched together and relentless as they hit the streets, roofs, sand, and townspeople. By the time I got to the shoreline, most of the fishermen were already mooring their boats. They decided the waves had gotten too rough and the wind too strong. One of the fishermen compared the sea to boxing Jesus Jose Becerra. The waves and the wind were jabs, hooks, and uppercuts that couldn't be avoided. I imagine Abuelo's face bruised by the storm. I searched for him, but I didn't see him. The old fisherman, Tiburcio, was carrying his small raft on his shoulders, and I asked him if he had seen Abuelo. He said he'd seen him right before he had rowed out. Tiburcio had advised me, Abuelo, to stay near the coast, but Abuelo shrugged him off because he was determined to catch tuna, or so he said. And the only way Abuelo could do that was to go to where the water was deep. All the fishermen who had seen Abuelo row out knew the danger he was placing himself in, but they hadn't tried to stop him. The waves were strong and tall, and the rain was coming down hard. The sound of thunder shook the whole town. I had never seen a storm like that before or since then. My whole body trembled. I didn't know if I shivered because of the cold or because of the fear of losing Abuelo to the sea. Now looking back, I know it's because of the fear. I ran alongside the shoreline. The ocean blended with the gray clouds. I couldn't tell which was which. I looked for a boat off in the distance, 
but it was difficult to see anything. The wind began pushing me side to side. When it pushed me up and down, I ran back to Abuela. I told her what I learned, and she lit a candle and grabbed her rosary. She prayed to each bead. Something else needed to be done. I told Abuela that I wanted my Abuelo back to his home, but she told me that the only thing we could do was pray for his safety. So I looked into the eyes of the small statue of La Virgencita, and I begged her to return Abuelo. After the storm passed, three of the town's fishermen, three of the town's oldest and wisest fishermen came to the house. They appeared to have floated in. They sat on the old equipoly chairs that were crafted from tanned pigskin and cedar strips. Outside, the gray clouds lingered and threatened the town with even more rain. Candles illuminated the faces of the three fishermen. Their skin looked like leather, cracking and peeling, especially around their eyes. Abuela offered them bitter cafecito. They accepted and nursed the brown clay mugs between their bony, mutilated hands. Their fingernails were thick and dirty, just like Abuelo's. The fishermen told Abuela about Abuelo, about his going out to sea. They said not to worry. Por qué no, I asked. How could we not? They said that they knew by the strength of the winds and by the direction of the current that mi abuelo would end up in Cuba. Oh, si, en Cuba. Si, si, en Cuba, the three fishermen agreed. Dios, abuela said. She was afraid that he'd end up joining those crazy barbudos in the mountains and get himself killed. The fishermen looked at each other, then looked down at their cafecito, unable to speak because they knew too well that she was right. Abuelo had heard about Fidel Castro and his Cuban revolution. He came to believe he found a spiritual ally in Castro, a brother in arms, un camarada. Abuelo often talked about joining Fidel in the mountains of Cuba. After the three men left, I searched through Abuelo's trunk. His revolver was gone. But right there on top of old newspapers, fishing lines, sharp hooks, and pictures of Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata was a copy of El Manifesto del Partido Comunista. The book cover had the picture of two men with beards. All the pages were creased at awkward angles, and the very first page had an inscription from someone named Eliza Acuna. She wrote that one should never give up or admit defeat. I put the book in my back pocket and headed for the town's public square. I was going to recruit a group of men to go out to see and bring Abuelo back. On the way, tiny drops of water hit my head and the back of my neck. The little light that pierced through the gray clouds disappeared. Quickly, the drops became bigger and plentiful. Luckily, Los Portales were nearby to shield me from the rain. Every evening, vendors set up their carts along the stone arches to sell tacos, agua frescas, tortas, churros with hot chocolate, bowls of pozole, and bottles of Coca-Cola. The murmuring people under the arches huddled around the vending carts, which were tiny stoves that provided them with warmth as well as with food. I reached for my abuelo's book and held it up. I could feel the townspeople's eyes on me, I began to say, mis hermanos y hermanas, 
I had their years, but I needed more. I needed to inspire them so that they would follow me anywhere. My next few words, I chose carefully. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. This is my first time serving as a mentor, and I could not be more excited to talk about Ron Dowell. All right. Ron Dowell, the writer I've had the pleasure of mentoring, is not only a fantastically creative writer, he's also a visionary and elaborate thinker, writing about things you've never seen before, a society where the wealthy and depressed literally thrive on the feces of the poor. A boy whose best friend is a roach. Or things you have seen before but written in an entirely new way. A neighborhood rebellion against drugs and gentrification. A junkie's painful descent to hitting bottom. Ron is a tour de force. From the depth of his thoughts to his single-minded determination, he really is a writing mentor's dream, both because he has so much to offer and because he is so eager to learn even more. Because he writes so deftly in magical realism, science fiction, and fantasy scenarios, we spent a lot of time talking about Afrofuturism, that artistic movement that strives to paint our future while giving homage to our past. Like many works in Afrofuturism, Ron's fiction often defies easy categorization. But what distinguishes any Ron Dowell piece is his colorful and specific use of language, his empathetic character renderings, and his willingness to go places in his writing few others can follow. Here are just a few of my favorite Ron Dowell excerpts. from the stories of his that I have seen, perhaps some have been discarded in his many drafts, but they linger in my memory nonetheless. I've never seen roaches fight. They probably don't argue and fuss either, Jubilee said. He'd never really seen it in his research, but said it anyway. Roaches respect each other. She farts in short bursts like an AK-47. <laughs> Show me your trash and I'll tell you who you are. Any good hospital janitor will tell you. A black air taxi turned its propeller pods upward. Dust clouds swirled onto untidy lives below when it slowed, landed. Angus braced himself for another LAPD rousting. Its vertical electric motors attached perpendicular to wingtips folded and disappeared into its carbon fiber body. Steel gray scissor doors rotated, out buzzed a silvery metallic cockroach-shaped aerial drone. Next, a pair of tan alligator cowboy boots crunched denuded sandy soil. It's him, said the six-legged walnut-sized drone, and chirpy androgynous lip smacks. And I'll leave the excerpts there because Ron can read his work better than I can read his work. But in service to his stories, I will say Ron Dowell gives, 
goes a lot of places that other writers can't or won't. His characters are the disenfranchised, the silenced, the downtrodden, the lonely, and the junkies recovering or hitting bottom. He uses his powerful imagination to address the human condition using both blistering metaphors and razor sharp precision to create new worlds or simply to make his characters' pain our shared human pain otherworldly. Rondow. How do I live up to that? <laughs> this story comes from a prompt that I started a couple of years ago in a class given by Colette Sartor, who is here. And every time I uh, look at the story, I can't help but think about Colette. This is it. Don't worry, I'm with you, my daughter. At the Kane emergency room entrance, Tracy leans her bent bloated body against her boyfriend, Elizair. Nighttime in South Los Angeles swelters as their sneakers squeak over Kane's pastel green linoleum. Rows of plastic chairs are jammed with sick and injured, like the twitchy woman in a loud pink camisole, camisole who hawks t-shirts with one hand and holds gauze over her eye with the other. The floor has a light scent of vinegar as if someone intended for it to have an inviting sparkle and shine. Tracy shifts her head to three nurses seated behind plexiglass. Although they look like clones of Florence Nightingale, Tracy knows better. Her fingers and toes feel numb and her gut rumbles like a runaway train. She tastes puke on the back of her tongue. The boxy room generates, gyrates as Elisea helps her check in. Don't let me fall, she says to him. A fall could bruise her plump brown face, and that wouldn't look good on her first day at work. I never let my little butterball fall, he says. Me cause on. Then he mops her face with a blue bandana, already soaked with her sweat, despite the coolness of the ER. Next, he wipes his forehead with it before he dabs away beads of sweat from her upper lip. A digital clock marks military time on a wall behind the nurses. It reads just before midnight. Plenty of time for her to see a doctor and still make her 10 a.m. job. Tracy's eyes linger on a huge county seal that to her looks sink foil with prismatic leaves. A janitor busts the floor in an area he's cordoned off with orange cones and yellow caution tape. His uniform is gray and blue, pants sharply starched. Her back teeth rattle when the whir of his floor dryer raises the ER noise several decibels. This is my third time here in two weeks, and it's your damn fault, Tracy yells through a cluster of holes in the plexiglass. Small children scream when they play hide-and-seek among listless adults seated facing the nurses. I know what nurses are supposed to do, she says. She's got a new job in the morning, says Elizair, his arm wrapped around Tracy's upper back. His musk cologne aggravates her headache. He presses his lips, his well-worn, pockmarked face against the plexiglass. She needs to go first. He pinches and pulls away his faded yellow Lakers t-shirt, his standard uniform. 
A nurse seated between two others inside the booth jumps a little when Tracy slaps the glass. Her blonde hair, big teeth, and equine features remind Tracy of Mr. Ed. Yeah, I'm next, she says. Tracy's seen this nurse before. Those times in the past when she's faked migraines for prescriptions. But these last two times, the pain in her gut has been real. Still, the nurses haven't let her see a doctor. The first visit, she tested positive for marijuana and traces of meth and was given a Valium script and sent home. Yesterday, she was admitted to the holding room next to the double swing doors leading to the ER doctors, only to be monitored by nurses and discharged with Tylenol and codeine before daybreak. Apparate, apparate repeat mohir, Elizaeus says, move your butts. His upper eyelid halfway covers his dark pupils. Each time she had gobbled up the drugs before he could ask for any, which made him walk out in a pissed off huff. Does he love drugs more than he loves her? He hadn't bothered to stay with her, so why should she share? Besides, she needed all the pills she could get. Even taking them all hadn't dented the pain, and now she's back. She gasps in worse agony than ever. I, I was just here last night. Maldito sea, she says as she farts in short bursts. Horseface looks Tracy up and down. Hmm, Miss Tapia, again? She finally says, calm yourself. But Tracy can't. This time the ache feels unrelievable, like tiny knives in her belly. She hasn't pooped in days or maybe weeks. Nothing helps, not the Advil she takes for everything from itchy feet to hot flashes, or her regular cocktail of cane prescription pills to numb out, blood extra to blast off, and ecstasy to party, which she took earlier today. Yeah, for her new job tomorrow, Elizeo says again. They'll pay me $7 an hour to dance. Then I can pay my hospital bills, she says. Well, maybe it's not an actual job. It's a demonstration for sign-spinning work with Libertine Tax Prep. From YouTube videos, she learned to crunk to ushers. Yeah. Amphetamines have helped her creaky joints. She had waved her arms around. Her body made spasmodic jerks. She killed it and beat out several younger competitors when she did a split. <laughs> I need something for pain, she says. If Libertine's business increases, she could wind up legit, an independent contractor maybe, which might help lift the restraining order that keeps her away from her son, Paco, Poppy's namesake. namesake. If nothing else, it'll help her stay high. Before she died, her mama would have been proud, but maybe not as much as she would have been had Tracy become a nurse. Mama had died in an instant from an aneurysm. Poppy, right before her, from sepsis in this very cane ER. Fucking sepsis. Fucking ER. I gotta be there by 10 a.m., she says. On time, the Libertine tax, tax prep guy has said. Thank you. Hello. This has been amazing. You guys are so great. 
Um, it's my pleasure to be here tonight. Um, this is also my first time serving as a mentor. Um, we are going to shift gears a little bit to nonfiction and memoir. Um, I am uh, the mentor for Natalie Miss Natalie Missling Mon, and she is uh, working on a memoir. So the job, the job of the memoirist is to recreate episodes of her life that, when woven together, paint a portrait of experience. A memoirist can capture the pain, the beauty, the poignancy of living in an always evolving, chaotic world. When such writing is executed with deep attention and with heart, a memoirist need not have lived the life of Neil Armstrong or Beyonce or Sandra Sotomayor to be worthy of publication or to gain an appreciative audience. And despite recent criticisms that memoirists are, quote, navel gazers or narcissists, and in spite of warnings from agents and critics that the book market has reached its saturation point of me, me, me stories, memoirs and personal essays are alive and well. Most of us crave true and honest stories told by bold voices that, with grace and poetry, tell us stories without realizing it that we were longing to hear. Stories that validate our experiences and connect us to each other word by word. This year, I have had the pleasure of working with Natalie, who is one such writer. Natalie writes with many aspects of her, about many aspects of her life, but I have especially enjoyed her stories about childhood, how she captures the innocence and confusion and wisdom of her younger self. In addition to asking questions from a child's perspective, she explores the themes of broken relationships and how to heal oneself, the effects of racism, what it means to be an American of mixed cultures, Mexican, Filipina, Indian and to have to justify oneself in response to people's questions, what are you? Who are you? Where are you from? Natalie is attempting to understand and to make peace with her past and her present. Her writing also contains a deep spiritual thread which reflects her search for answers. I am fortunate to know such a talented woman who, with her words, shines a light on yet another facet of our multicultural American experience. Please welcome Ms. Natalie Mon. Thank you, Angela. That was, thank you. Oh. <laughs> the congealed smell of bovine grease greets me in the living room. Mom molds meatballs by hand using eggs and breadcrumbs before she heats marinara from a jar. In the grocery store, Mom had let me choose the sauce. I stood in front of the shelves, debating between ragu or progresso, and decided on the brand with a New Yorker in the commercial. He says, 
it's the best spaghetti sauce I ever ate. <laughs> At five, I trust the stranger. He reminds me of my friend Marie next door. Every evening, a breeze of garlic lingering with tomatoes teases us as we run along the sidewalk between our front lawns. Marie's mom calls through the window in her Brooklyn Italian accent. Marie, supper. Her Lucille ball hair peeks through the edge of a white curtain before she draws it closed. I ask Marie, what are they having? She says, lasagna, pizzella for dessert. Her family sits around a table passing garlic bread while mine sits picnic style in front of the television. Unlike her mom, my mom works. She, sounds echo from my parents' TV right before dinner. They are my soundtrack. Death to America, death to Carter. I twirl on the living room's white linoleum floor, then stop. The room circles around and around. As mom prepares spaghetti in the kitchen, I notice dad stretching on his brown recliner. His legs extend beyond the fuzzy polyester fabric. Exhausted from his commute, dad doesn't notice my performance because he's reading this morning's edition of the LA Times. Before dad folds the front page to continue, I catch familiar words. Iranian, embassy, hostage. This crisis never goes away. I begin spinning again, not for dad's attention, but because I like the way my dress lifts up. Pink flowers on cobalt blue background float through the air, reminding me of those black and white movies where women dance with Fred Astaire. I dance on the same floor where I do arithmetic homework. But instead of solving single-digit sums, I discover those false grooves that create the facade of a tiled floor. I run my pencil along the outlines, holding a pink eraser in my left hand to rub out the evidence when I see one of my parents approaching. An unknown path exists somewhere between my tiny brown body and the reality on the national broadcast news. Tracing my mental dance, the ground, my labyrinth. In silence, I enter a magical realm where stories unfold, where my, where my rebellious nature thinks it's okay to do the exact opposite of what mom tells me to do, like when I was two. Mom had left me alone in her running station wagon with the defrost on. That morning, the windshield wipers didn't budge the ice. Mom had told me not to touch anything before she got out of the frozen, before she got out of the car to hose away the frozen layer. As soon as she closed the driver's side door, I crawled from the back seat to the front, pulled the gear shift on the steering wheel to drive. The engines screeched into a crash. I drove into my bedroom wall. 
Our home's avocado green exterior collapsed onto the front of mom's red Dodge Aspen. She kept her classroom full of students waiting after calling State Farm. When the agent appeared, did he wonder what kind of mother would leave her child alone in a started car? Maybe he didn't realize it wasn't the mother's fault. This is what two-year-olds do when mothers go back to work. As a two-year-old, I didn't know how to ask for attention. I still don't. I walk over to mom, stand beside her, and look up. The counter hits me mid-chin, grazing below my lower lip. She heaps long noodles onto paper plates, washing dishes unnecessary. After teaching, mom is done for the day. She doesn't ask me about school. I don't tell her how I hate the clapping game my classmates want to play at lunch. My insides churn when I copy them. Chinese, Japanese, Indian chief, we slant our eyelids and cross our arms. I join in because they already think I'm different. They ask me, what are you? They understand Mexican and Filipino, but the Indian part confuses them. They make a new lady sound with a hand tapping their mouths. When I tell them I'm Sikh, not that kind of Indian, it confuses them more. I wonder what kind of physical gestures they'll come up with for me. Turning from the kitchen toward the TV, I notice a man with a long beard and black turban appearing on the screen. The man reminds me of dad's first pictures in America. Instead of a black turban, dad wore light blue. The color of my skin similar to the men carrying guns. I want to tell mom about Jamie, my only friend at the all-white Montessori school who doesn't ask me what I am. However, watching the news, I comprehend that Jamie's skin is not like mine. Mom glances down for a second. I grab her attention by conjuring a story. Without under understanding consequences, I lie. Jamie's aunt is a hostage. <laughs> In that second, I didn't specify whether it was her mom or dad's side. Mom speaks her question like a statement, uh, is that right? Yes, she told me today at lunch. I wait for mom to respond. She doesn't. I leave the counter to continue twirling faster, faster, faster. My sticky naked feet grasp the floor. I have control. Through my story, I built a connection to my parents' grown-up world. By the time open house came along, I had forgotten my story. Mom gathered my paintings before we walked back to her car. Jamie's, Jamie's mom parked next to mine. After she loaded my artwork into her station wagon trunk, she turned to Jamie's mom and spoke with a sparkling voice. Natalie mentioned that Jamie's aunt was one of the hostages. Well, she could be. Jamie's mom smiled at mine. I haven't talked to my sister on the phone for over a week. Mom smiled back. 
they exchanged a coded glance, their way of calling me out without scolding. I stood silent in my burgundy sweater and skirt set, looking at my sleeves' frayed edges. When I played on the jungle gym, the cream accents on my sweater sleeves would sometimes catch between my palms and the steel bars. Listening to the tone in our mother's voices, I understood that it wasn't just my outfit's knitting that had come undone. I felt heat rising in my body, not the kind that comes from anger, but the kind that emerges as a fiery warning to run from a situation gone wrong. In the parking lot, I stared down at the gravel, wanting to hide I had nowhere to go. Mom punctured a hole that deflated how I wanted to be seen in the world, where I wasn't interrogated, where I existed on my own terms, not through outsiders' eyes. When I sat in the back of Mom's Aspen, I huddled on the bench seat. My back pushed against the red vinyl with the radio off. We drifted from the school down Sherman Way toward Reseda Boulevard. The light from the street lamps blurred through mom's unwashed windows as palm trees cast shadows into the car. Shifting light appeared and disappeared on the way home, fleeting with my thought, what will Jamie say when she sees me at school tomorrow? I don't remember playing with Jamie again. I don't know why mom never asked me about the story. Maybe as a mother and a teacher, she knew the importance of imagination. In preschool, my teacher called mom in for a conference because she found my paintings disturbing. I created caves when other toddlers played outside. After painting stick figures, I mixed primary colors with black and white atop a cardboard palette. Without knowing the shades' names, I concocted Byzantium purples, carmine reds, and mustard yellows, then covered the images with alternating blocks of color. I manifested art before I had heard of color field painting. With each stroke, I imagined being one of those people at La Brea Tar Pits. Wearing white coats, they took brushes and tools to excavated prehistoric bones before they pieced them together for display. But unlike a paleontologist, I found beauty in hiding definable worlds. Unlike the objects that the scientists classified, no words defined my family and I into a single category. I found harmony in the mixed colors bleeding into one another side by side creating an existence where it didn't matter if the edges blurred. such strong work. Let's give it up for all this excellent work we've heard tonight, seriously. And now it's poetry time. But really quickly, I want to thank Penn, Penn, Amanda, everyone who works there, and Natalie, all the interns, because um, without them, I wouldn't meet Juby. So seriously, thank y'all so much. I appreciate it.
And I also want to thank all y'all out in the audience because you could be doing a lot of stuff with your Friday and you caring about literature and diversity. And um, that's just one step, right? There's a lot going on right now. And that's one good step. So thank y'all so very much. Yeah, we can clap for that. I like to clap a lot too. Let's clap. I smile a lot, clap a lot. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Philip Larkin, that old grumpy white man with his old grumpy white man poems really got it right with the first line of this be the verse our parents really do fuck us up i ain't lying y'all know it too they may not mean to but they do is what larkin offers as a lessening of the blow after the gut punch of this first line Years later, the poet Lee, young Lee, would say in an interview that all of his poems are searching for his father. Years earlier, Plath had already written, Daddy, I have had to kill you. For me, like Lee and Plath, almost everything I write is about my father, influenced by my father, and can be better understood when you know about my relationship with my father. Almost any daddy poem can bring me to my knees. Recently, a good friend of mine did a Southwest reading tour, and we called it the Bad Dads Tour. So needless to say, when I was blessed and when I was encountered Jupy's work and learned about his complicated, messy relationship with his father, I was totally in. But Juby's work just isn't about his father. It's about existing in America in a queer black male body. It's about the empowering, challenging, and problematic inheritance of black masculinity. It's about the throb of love and the difficulty of love in a world that doesn't want you to love, that doesn't want you to even exist. It's about how good food can you turn a bad mood and create a family. It's about ice cream. It's about hot combs. It's about natural kinks. It's about how the right baseline and groove can soothe the sores the world instills upon us. It's about how we make the world matter, how we make it scared and sacred, how we make it pray. Juby, the poet who prays that he will have the grace to greet the patrolman's gaze without Crenshaw in his eyes and catfish on his tongue. That's my mentee, y'all. That's who I'm supposed to teach something. You feel me? I was a little bit afraid, too. <laughs> I was like, uh-uh. Well, let me be all the way real. Juby did teach me. Juby taught me how to write like no one can ever hurt or destroy you. Juby taught me how to stroll through the world with salvation in my eyes and the enemy below my boot. Make sure y'all look at his boots when he come up here. <laughs> Juby taught me that your life is your own and that the things you carry can only bring, them, bring you down if you don't know how to use them. 
With his gift of the pen emerging, Voices Fellowship, Juby has written so many new, beautiful short stories, personal essays, and poems that will teach the world like he's taught me. Juby's older than me, but he's not some grumpy old white man with grumpy old white man poems. He's a truth teller whose work is going to continue to grow and resonate as he continues his writing career at the University of Miami, y'all. Let's give him some claps. And because my daddy never says stuff like this to me, I want to say it to Juby. Juby is the best thing his father ever made. He's the man his father could never be. Please help me and walk me, Juby, y'all. He's okay. Thank y'all so much for being here tonight. Um, the first poem I'm going to share with you is called Better. I am better than you. Fuck you, I'll say it again. I am better than you. I'm not better than you by accident. I'm not better than you by birth. I had better beaten into me with braided belts and broken broomsticks. I had better bullied into my brain on the ball court. Better is my brand, my belief, and my bond. Better was my best and only childhood buddy. When I was sick, I wasn't babied if my brow wasn't beaded, if I couldn't taste bile, I better get my butt on that school bus. Better is my born religion. Better is the case for big breakfast and against thick sleep. Better is the only B word I was taught to say. Shoot. My daddy got me so scared of the letter B, I almost didn't write this poem. <laughs> Thank y'all for being here tonight. I strive to live up to the words that introduced me tonight. And, and, and thank you, Doug. Thank you to the Penn Fellowship. And thank you to the Los Angeles literary community. I feel like y'all have so embraced me and fed me. And wherever I go in my life from here, I know where my literary home is, and it's Los Angeles. So I just thank you so much. I'm still working through the introduction, so. The next poem I'm gonna share with you, and I don't have too many, and they're short, I promise, but the next poem I'm gonna share with you comes from 
a long tradition of list poems, and one of the ways people do list poems is through definitions, as in dictionary definitions. And this one focuses on a word I've had a lot of struggle with, and probably you have had a lot of struggle with. Comply, verb, one, to bend past the moment of fracture. Two, to present one's body for dislocation or displacement. See also diaspora, deportation, dispossession. Three, to tender kisses to concrete with assistance, though unsolicited, which is to say she was asking for it. See also prostrate, grovel, bootlick, beg. Four, to seed the schema of mouth to orifice. See also hole, gap, slot, slit. Five, to yearn for the shrouding of silence. Six, to mortgage one's voice as speculation in breath. See also muzzle, gag, choke, asphyxiate. Seven, to sever tongue from spine. This next poem, which is rounding up to the last one, um, focuses on one of the many tragedies we've dealt with in the past few years. And in this body, I can't help but think about guns. I don't want to, but y'all live in the same world I do, so I think you know why I do. Um, this poem is called Pulse. But tonight, Everything we want is dance to mommy and to papi and bruh and baby our way into hungering arms. Our hips overflowing with jukebox and baseline where jerk and twerk and pose and grind are street names for genuflection. We sing in shaman's terms, I see the God in you. Rage toward crescendo and lockstep, sweat like worship is labor, find freedom in our faith, this beat, this praise song. Too soon we come to end of anthem, our burden now to still our souls. We linger down your chest, fingers press flesh where bullets will soon enter. I had a lot of stuff to say, but I think I'm going to 
just read my final poem after I take another minute? We're poets. We're emotional. I'm so sorry. If y'all didn't want emotional, I'm sorry. Um, because um, I'm a poet and because I'm me, I like circles. Um, and so I want to end with the poem I began this fellowship with. This one is called, This is Not a Dear John Letter. I have a confession, America. I will never consider suicide. I love rainbows, sure. But what I really miss is carrot cake and cum. I've planned your murder a million times, just a tiny little death, America. I've pitchforked you until you geysered my birthright all over me. Was it good for you too, America? I'm a freak, America, a peeping Tyrone. I fashion a fetish out of outside looking in. I'm a schoolgirl, America. 13 going on gutted, all sass and curves and possibilities. I'm a cowboy, America. 13 going on gelding, all swear words and swagger and shirts versus skins. I'm a symphony of breaking bones. I'm shredding skin on concrete canvas. I'm a teaspoon of history whisked into a pound of lies. I am original kink. I am the shackled serpent. I am Jesus to your Judas. Yes, I'm the patron saint of probable cause. What do you think, America? Does this poem earn me an FBI file? This is not a manifesto, America. This is not a ransom note. This is not a Dear John letter. This is not an invoice. This is a dare. I dare you to love me, America. I dare you to love me like it's legal. Gotta go after Juby. <laughs> Fail before I even start talking. Hi, everybody. I can't see you, but thank you for coming. <sighs> Loving writers is hard. We are difficult people. We are prone to bouts of depression and moments of self-doubt constantly questioning our own efficacy, always in need of reinforcement, and even then, most of us don't think we deserve to carry the moniker, writer. What a charged word that is for us. 
Once you use it to describe yourself, people inevitably want to know where they've seen your work. Where can I read what you've written? And if the only place it exists is on your laptop, you can feel the downshift in their attention. You intuit the eye roll. So you write, but you're not a writer. As if one is still walking on four legs and the other has evolved to two. But imagine for a moment that is in fact what happens. Emerging Voices is the catalyst for a writer's evolution. The big bang that starts your writing life. And how it happens is this. You take those words on your laptop and you share them with an audience. First on your application, then with your mentor, your UCLA classmates, your voice and masterclass instructors, your cohort, and finally, with an actual audience, like all of you here with us tonight. It is in that act of purposeful sharing in a professional capacity that we start to shift there is a perceivable straightening of the spine, a tentative fanning of the fingers, a drawing down of the shoulders, a resoluteness in the face of interminable desire. I don't know if anyone noticed like little Dougie's leg here dancing. It's like, that's, that's his deal. Because what we learn here is that this writing life is also hard and that if we are to succeed, we must continue to walk on two legs. I've witnessed this cellular level transformation with my own cohort in 2012, with alumni, and over the last seven months with the 2018 Emerging Voices Fellows. I've felt it in my own DNA. It's like a quickening that can't be undone, even when you might wish it. Storytellers like us are important. Storytellers are important. Personal narrative stands on, at the front line of change. Through stories, we are emboldened to action. And I get to be part of the resistance, I tell everyone this, by being a part of Emerging Voices in PEN America. Managing the fellowship allows me to step outside of myself, to consider stories other than my own. And if we have very many creative nonfiction writers in here, that is like a big deal because we're very self-absorbed. Um, sorry, Natalie. So Angela, Natalie, Frankie, Ron, and Juby, I want you guys to know that you are doing important work, and I don't want you to ever forget that. And congratulations. So let's give them another. All right, Jim. Hit it, Jim. Uh, so, so many people are responsible for making this fellowship a reality, and uh, from author evenings to master classes, UCLA instructors, uh, mentors, the mentors. Can we have another hand for the mentors? Without you guys agreeing to, to spend time with us, we wouldn't have a fellowship. And, Normally I would stand up here and I would, you know, just be reading so many names. And instead this year, uh, LACAC uh, gifts us with an intern every year. And this year our intern, Melina, has made us this amazing thank you reel. So perhaps you noticed it on your way in, but if you didn't, I'm bringing it back. So I want you guys, as, as we're leaving, as we're going out to have a celebratory cocktail, 
toasting the fellows, I want you to look for your names up here because they're probably here because you probably helped us in some way and I really appreciate it. Alex is laughing because he does know that his name is up there. So please, let's, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you to the Moss Theater. Thank you to the mentors. Thank you to the 2018 PEN America Emerging Voices Fellows. Congratulations, you guys are amazing. I also want to say thank you to the PEN America staff, both in the LA office and the New York office. Um, and I want to say a special thank you to Miss Natalie Green. Yes. Who helps me without, without you, girl. There is no me. Uh, and if anybody wanted to grab something to eat after, the Brixton is kind of is a, a less than a mile away. You can see me, and they're waiting for us. So uh, that's it. Thank you all for coming.